For much of his celebrated career, renowned British neurologist Dr. Andrew Lees kept a deep professional secret from his peers and the world. The secret was that his groundbreaking research into Parkinson's disease was deeply influenced by the controversial American writer and heroin addict William S. Burroughs. If you read his descriptions of his self-experimentation with drugs like amphetamine, with opiates, uh, and the psychedelic drugs, you can learn a great deal about the actual effect of these drugs. It all began when Dr. Lee saw a face he didn't recognize on the cover of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Acting on idle curiosity, Lee's learned it was William Burroughs. Pretty soon, Lee's was going down the Burroughs rabbit hole, learning from a man he would never meet, but who would become his lifelong invisible mentor. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew Lees, Professor of Neurology at University College London Institute of Neurology. His book about Burroughs is called Mentored by a Madman, The William Burroughs Experiment. Dr. Lees, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. You achieved global recognition and many, many awards for your work on Parkinson's disease and abnormal movement disorders. And you are one of the most cited researchers in the field. And one could argue that no one should be less afraid of ostracism by your peers than you. So what was it about William Burroughs himself and about the culture of the medical profession that made you afraid to disclose his influence on your work? And why did you keep it a secret for so long? Well, even today, the British medical establishment is very conservative um, and also very powerful, so that if you blot your copybook, particularly as a trainee, uh, you, you end up in the Outer Hebrides doing something that you don't really want to do. So uh, we, we were all, I think, certainly as trainees, quite fearful, because unlike the United States, which is far bigger, you could move to another hospital or another institution. The number of the number of options available to, for example, a, a medical resident uh, was quite few. So we we had to be very, really watch our p's and q's and be very careful uh, if we wanted to get the patronage from our seniors that we really needed to advance in our career. So if you really wanted to be a neurologist. It was highly competitive and you had to be very um, toe the line, really. There was no room for rebelliousness or uh, anti-establishmentism. Burroughs was not a poster child for good behavior. <laughs> no, no. I mean, of course, most doctors didn't even know who he was, uh, in fact. Um, at least the younger doctors. I mean, the people of my own generation, the 60s, children of the 60s. I mean, mo most people would know at least about him. They may never have read him, uh, that he was involved with the counterculture and the movement of the beats and so on. But um, later on, uh, he, he was really, I think, largely forgotten. Uh, uh, and, and very few doctors would have read him. You know, I mean, he, he wouldn't be the sort of... Um, person that you would recommend to a young person uh, hoping to take up a career in medicine. 
What was it about him? What was his? What were his most controversial uh, aspects of his writing and his thinking? Just to name a few for those who are not that familiar with his work. Well, when I when I first read Naked Lunch, I didn't know whether to vomit or laugh. Uh, it's a mixture of routines, uh, almost carnival-like, in which. Um, uh, one intermixes very humorous sketches, particularly Dr. Benway, the, anti- the antithesis of a good doctor, uh, with sort of urinal and lavatory humor uh, involving hanging, which is called, you know, uh, uh, people hanging themselves for what's called angel lust so to get sexual gratification. And some very lurid um, homosexual scenes, particularly for the 60s, when homosexuality was still illegal both in the States and in the UK. So there were some things when I first read Naked Lunch that I really found quite repulsive. And uh, his life, of course, was a very difficult one. He was, as you mentioned in the introduction, he was a heroin addict. Um, He was a homosexual at a time when homosexuality was illegal. And he uh, killed possibly deliberately or possibly by accident, his common-law wife, June Volmer, in a sort of William Tell kind of drama that he set up in Mexico City in the Bounty Bar. So he asked his common-law wife, Joan, to put a glass on the top of her head, and then he fired a gun, and instead of hitting the glass, he was a good shot. He, 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 He liked firearms, and he was a good shooter, but he missed. And he hit, he killed her with a shot in the forehead. So his life, he had a very troubled life and spent 15 years in psychoanalysis in New York City. So, um, you know, he, he, he wasn't somebody who you would set up as a paragon of virtue or somebody who really one could imagine ever possibly being a doctor, although he actually did want to be a doctor. Um, and after he'd graduated at Harvard um, reading American literature, he toyed with the idea of going to medical school. He hadn't done uh, his graduation in math- mathematics and science, so he wasn't eligible to uh, go to an American medical school. But he enrolled at the University of Vienna uh, just before the Second World War. Uh, but dropped out uh, after one term. It's not really quite clear why he did drop out. He he did have an appendicitis in that first term and missed some of his classes. But I think he just uh, did, didn't enjoy rigid uh, training and apprenticeship, which one needs to become a doctor. I mean, even when he was at Harvard, he although he graduated, he set up his own curriculum. He didn't attend too many lectures and uh, didn't read the books that were recommended uh, by his um, tutors. He, he he made his own uh, uh, educational system within within the bounds of Harvard, which he actually hated. He, he didn't like Harvard at all, and found it sort of stuffy, conservative, um, and untruthful and deceitful. And and so so this is somebody who is very. Uh, controversial and unconventional. And you say in your book that you've always had like this deep-seated fear of authority and you were unhappy in your medical career at the time. So what was it that you were most unhappy about towards practicing medicine 
that when you saw his face on the cover and you looked at his first book, you were so drawn in. Yes. I mean, I think uh, I really became mainly disenchanted with medical studies in my final clinical year. Um, And I wasn't really sure whether uh, I would be suitable to spend the next 50 years of my life looking after uh, people with with serious illnesses. So it it was a a mixture of some of the things I saw on the ward. Some of my teachers were really very, very good teachers and very influential and inspirational. But there were one or two sort of diva doctors, particularly surgeons, who were quite aggressive, quite belligerent, uh, egotistical and hubristic, uh, who really um, didn't like to give bad news and only really basked in their successes, but didn't want to admit their mistakes. Um, And I think um, that that kind of prevalent attitude of paternalism, which was endemic in medicine in the 60s and happily has now almost disappeared, uh, was one of the things that put me off. I mean, I also... Uh, when I was doing psychiatry, and Burroughs was particularly interested in psychiatry and psychiatric treatments, and and read a lot of uh, medical papers and kept up to date with sort of things like Scientific American. Uh, I mean, when when I saw how mental patients were being treated with insulin coma, electrical shock, uh, lobotomies, and so on, I mean, this seemed... um, quite gruesome and I wasn't sure really whether it was very effective. The evidence suggesting that these treatments were were useful was not not very clear. So it it was things like that which led to disenchantment. Plus, of course, it was the swinging 60s, counterculture, people were questioning everything, uh, everything conventional. Uh, So, you know, I had a a rebellious streak, which was a feature uh, actually not just of me, but probably of the whole of my generation, uh, the 60s generation. So uh, this, I think, worked a little bit against me. I became sort of contradictory uh, and rebelled against the conformity uh, of British medicine at that time. So it, it got quite serious. I got quite depressed. Um, I needed to take tablets for a few weeks. Um, and uh, I, re- I seriously considered dropping out. Um, and it was around that time that one of my friends was reading Naked Lunch, and I pinched his copy of the book and started reading it. So this was a couple of years after I'd been introduced to William Burroughs on the Sgt. Pepper album. I'd never, I mean, apart from uh, identify, learning who he was, in fact, I identified uh, every single person on the Sgt. Pepper album. When I, I'd got all, the, I, I was born in Liverpool, so I'd got, I'd collect, I was a great fan of the Beatles. I'd got their seven first albums before Sgt. Pepper. And of course, I rushed out to buy Sgt. Pepper. But I think what was perhaps a little bit different and probably was a clue that I might eventually become a neurologist, was that I became quite obsessed with the cover. And I wanted to, when I first looked at it, I could only identify about 30% of the 
of the people on the cover. So, but I managed to get a key from a magazine and look through uh, and identify all the faces with names on the cover. And that's when I first heard of William Burroughs, but I didn't really you know, get, get into exploring what he'd written about until a couple of years later during this critical period of disenchantment, uh, just before I was due to qualify as a doctor. And what did he say in his writings that actually kept you in the field and gave you encouragement to keep moving on with this with this career? Uh, well, he, I mean, he spoke to me really through through his writings. He spoke. To, he, he he told me that I should question everything. Um, he told me that I shouldn't be afraid of self experimentation, uh, and he told me that um, control systems were there to be broken down. Um, and these were, you know, these were things which I lapped up because of my, the, the fact that I was already feeling a little bit like that myself based on my own experience. So it spoke to me very much. And then some of the, this, his sketch, for example, of Dr. Benway, who I've mentioned, who's one of his most famous characters and recurs in several of his other books, as well as Naked Lunch, I mean, he seemed to remind me, in a way, of one of uh, my teachers, a very arrogant surgeon, who uh, a chest surgeon, who would have um, his patients after a lung cancer operation standing up almost to attention in their beds. They had to sit up rigidly straight in the beds and, or, and were not allowed to speak to him or ask questions. And he just kind of walked around the ward. Um, not not really giving them any comfort or kindness, um, and ju- just basking in his um, competence as a good surgeon. Uh, and although Benway, uh, I'm not trying to say that this man was like exactly like Benway. There was some resonance between the thing, the barbaric things Benway was doing in the name of science. Um, and uh, what I was seeing uh, on the ward. So uh, it, we have to note here that where Burroughs had the greatest influence on you was in your work as a researcher, but definitely not in your work as a doctor, because Burroughs was not a uh, a good sort of a role model for doctoring. No, he... Uh, he, as I said to you, he, wa- he always saw himself as a doctor. And in many of the interviews that people can uh, listen to on YouTube, he often said in the interviews he was very interested in doctoring. And to his group of friends, people like Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, uh, and young, the younger people who he tended to cultivate and collect around him, he, he, he behaved almost like a shaman uh, to them. Uh, so he he did, I think, always have this feeling that he he might have been a good doctor, but the reality was that he would have probably been a terrible doctor. I mean, he he he, uh, he would have been selective. I think he would have um, chosen people who interested him and give, and devoted a lot of attention to them at the expense of all the other people who came to see him. Uh, he may have done um, negligent things uh, on them because I think um, he, he wouldn't have followed the, the, the Hippocratic Oath and the, the rules of, of being good doctoring. 
Um, but but he he I think he had a and 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 he had a very in that sense he had a very ambivalent and ambiguous relationship with the medical profession. I mean he had seen huge numbers of psychoanalysts, uh, 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 all of which he found completely useless. He he felt that uh, they they hadn't helped him at all. He'd been admitted to Bellevue hospital in New York with a, an erroneous diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia after he'd cut his uh, one of his fingers off after a row with a boyfriend. And he'd been mislabeled as a schizophrenic by incompetent by psychiatrists at, at the hospital. And then, then he, later on in his life, of course, he met uh, a lot of pusher doctors, you know, doctors working up in the upper Upper East Side and, and the Upper West Side of New York City, who who would give it if he if he behaved nicely, uh, he he could get a prescription. So he 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 always said that uh, patients had to have a good bedside manner in order to get what they want from doctors. So he cultivated this air of politeness and kindness in order to get the prescriptions of opioids that he needed. So he, he kind of knew how to manipulate doctors. And then later on in his career, he met one or two doctors which he respected very much, like Dr. John Dent, who treated him for heroin addiction in London with a drug called apomorphine. Uh, and he had a great respect for Dent because Dent... Dent understood him or and they had you know they were able to have a good uh, equal dialogue between the two of them not not as a doctor and a patient but really almost as a, a friend um, and uh, they hit it off and Dent's treatment uh, really helped him a lot and allowed him to uh, complete Naked Lunch and get it published and finally get some uh, belated recognition for his his literary talent. You spent the majority of your your career focusing on the use uh, and impact of the most effective medicines for treating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And Burroughs inspired you to find this groundbreaking treatment for Parkinson's. How did that come about? And and talk a little bit about the disease and this drug and and the impact that it had both on the patients and on you and your career. Well, well, Burroughs took almost every um, mind-altering drug that's ever been invented. So he was well ahead of people like Timothy Leary, taking all the psychedelic drugs in the late 50s. And what, what interested me about um, him was that he, he treated his own brain as if it was a, a Petri dish for growing things on. So he was very scientific in his way of writing about drugs, particularly for an author who wasn't a scientist. Um, so that if you read his descriptions of his self-experimentation with drugs like amphetamine, with opiates, uh, and the psychedelic drugs, you can learn a great deal about the actual effect of these drugs. And, and these self-descriptions spoke very much to me, much more than the very dry medical accounts uh, written by often by doctors who have never had any personal experience of taking mind-altering drugs. So it, it helped to me, me to understand um, the effects of these drugs. Now, the other thing, of course, was that he self-experimented. And 
when I was um, starting my medical research in the late 70s, early 80s, at University College Hospital, we, we were actually encouraged to self-experiment. It seemed as if there was nothing more ethical than if you're trying a new drug for a particular illness. In my case, it was Parkinson's disease treatment research. That um, you should, even if you haven't got Parkinson's, you should at least take the drug to make sure it was safe, it was tolerated, and to know what it was like. So in the 80s, uh, which was a period which people look back on now as a period in the United Kingdom of great austerity and control, for me, compared with now, it was a period of great freedom because my teachers were encouraging us to self-experiment with drugs. It was part of the protocol. Now, nowadays, um, it, this is very much frowned on and it's gone underground. You can't get papers of self-experimentation published in high-impact medical journals. It's considered to be subjective. It's, of course, not without risk, so you're putting yourself at a certain amount of danger. And N equal one studies, that means studies, scientific studies carried out on just one person and particularly yourself, uh, are really considered not to be of much value now, which I think is a great shame and actually a great mistake. So for the, the for those two uh, the, for those two aspects, I think he um, he he helped me a lot um, to record what I felt myself with these drugs and and to to report it the drugs that we were trying, and then. Um, one of my greatest achievements in medicine, uh, at least from my perspective, it's not what my peers think is my greatest achievement, but is my, what I see as my greatest achievement is the reintroduction of a drug called apomorphine uh, for the treatment of severe Parkinson's disease. This, and this drug, interestingly, despite its name, is not a narcotic, although it is made from morphine in the laboratory. And we... It was discovered that in the 60s that it stimulates dopamine receptors in the brain. And Parkinson's disease, in a very simple way, is, is due to a deficiency of dopamine. The body is not, the brain is not producing enough dopamine. So uh, apomorphine, once it was known that it could stimulate dopamine receptors, um, was a potential treatment for, uh, for Parkinson's disease. Although because it had to be injected, nobody had really taken it very much further. And I remembered um, Burroughs' descriptions in Naked Lunch about how he had gone to see John Dent in London when he was desperate at the end of the line. He'd been in Tangiers, and he, I think he'd come to the conclusion that if he went on taking dope, he was going to kill himself pretty quickly. So he arrived in London... Uh, in a pretty desperate state. Uh, his parents were well off. His grandfather had um, invented an adding machine uh, and they, led, they were from St. Louis. He was born in St. Louis. So he's, he depended very much up until the age of 50 on um, stipends and, um, uh, from his family. So his family gave him an, an allowance and helped him out of all sorts of fixes, probably Without that, it wouldn't have happened. Anyway, with their help, he arrived um, in London at, at Jolton Dent's doorstep. And, the, and Dent was one of the few people using apomorphine to treat drug addiction. 
Now, it had been used earlier as what was thought to be an aversion therapy because um, apomorphine makes people vomit unless you do something to stop them vomiting with a, an antidote. And it was thought that it stopped craving uh, in drug addicts and alcoholics by a sort of Pavlovian aversion effect, so that it made people sick, and therefore if they took it with alcohol, they wouldn't want to take it again. But Dent, even before it was known that apomorphine stimulated dopamine receptors, believed it was working as a metabolic stimulant on the back brain. So he, he explained all this to Burroughs, and because Burroughs had an interest in science, um, he wasn't scientifically trained, but he had an interest in science, he liked this uh, idea, and it came as quite a, a refreshing uh, hypothesis compared with the drug-dependence doctors that he'd met previously uh, and, and who had failed to help him. So he kind of bought into the idea of what he called a junk vaccine. Uh, and this really um, helped him. Now, when I started to do my research, I thought back to Naked Lunch, and I remembered apomorphine, and I now knew that apomorphine uh, stimulated dopamine receptors. So there was a kind of scientific rationale now for the resurrection of apomorphine for, for possible treatment of Parkinson's disease. So I, I, I have to thank... Um, him also for um, helping to cue me and perhaps speak to me to say, look, why don't you try apomorphine? You know, well, why don't you try apomorphine? Which I think he did in a in a way. Um, and that that drug, of course, is now marketed, commercialized, uh, and it's been used to treat thousands of people with late stage Parkinson's disease. So I have to thank him for that too. One of the other uh, things you did, and I think this was late in your career, was you kind of followed Burroughs in, in his footsteps, so to speak, and you went to the Amazon uh, to try to self-experiment with a native vine that he had experimented on and to see what impact that might have on, on Parkinson's disease. What, what was that experience like and, and what was that vine and, and what did you think of that whole uh, research project? Yes, well, in desperation, Burroughs had, uh, in the fifth, early 50s, Burroughs had read a, a pulp magazine at Grand Central Station in New York in which he, he read about um, an Indian uh, medicine which, which it, the, the, the article said had telepathic uh, qualities, which is now known largely as most people call it ayahuasca, although it has many different names. Um, and he was very interested in this. He researched it at the New York Public Library and found actually very little because not much was known about it at, at that time. But he learned that the CIA and the KGB were experimenting with it during the Cold War period as a, as a possible truth drug to be used as a, a type of brainwashing. Uh, so uh, he, he was kind of intrigued by this and... and had ideas about writing so an article about about this after he'd explored it himself. So he headed off from the States to Colombia, um, and it was his very good fortune to meet Richard Evans Schultz, who is the now regarded as the father of 
of modern ethnobotany, a, a, a man who started as a doctor but became so interested in ethnobotany that he switched to botany uh, at Harvard. So he was almost a contemporary of Burroughs uh, at Harvard, although they didn't know one another at that time. And Burroughs just by chance bumped into Schultz, uh, and Schultz agreed to, who would take also himself taken many hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic drugs during his 10, 15 years uh, traveling through the Amazon, agreed to take Burroughs with him and introduced him on their travels to the effect of uh, what Burroughs referred to as under another name called Yage and published his writings with Allen Ginsberg called the Yage Letters, which was one of the first books I read after Naked Lunch of Burroughs, which describes his uh, experiences in the forest. Now, um, so I, I had this also at the back of my mind, that, and Bur Burroughs uh, reported in the Yage Letters that this drug had broken down a lot of barriers, opened horizons, and altered his concepts of space-time. So it, it, it wasn't just hallucinations. He did see hallucinations, but it was the, the, the time-bending uh, aspects of the drug which particularly intrigued him. He didn't experience any tele telepathic effects, much to his disappointment. Uh, so I, I'd remembered this, and I'd remembered it partly because I also had encountered uh, Richard Schultz uh, before I went to medical school, because before I went to medical school, I had shared passions. One was uh, science. Uh, I had two conflicting passions. One was science and the other was art. And it was only after I'd got into medicine that I found a way of reconciling these two things. And my, my science interests were really natural history and particularly botany. So I... Uh, knew about Richard Spruce, who was an Amazon, uh, a Victorian Amazon botanist, and who Schultz had uh, written a lot about, and was all, he was also one of Schultz's heroes as one of the early plant collectors. So there was all this background, and then uh, in my early sixties, um, I began to tread water and um, run out of ideas. So you know, I did, had a moderately successful career uh, in medical research. I, I was written a lot of good papers, but I was really running out of uh, creative new ideas. And I, I toyed with the idea of retiring, but I was still really curious um, for, new, for new cures. You know, we still hadn't cracked Parkinson's disease. Uh, the best treatments were by this time 40 years old, and I wanted to try and keep going. So I... Had the op I was uh, I'm a regular uh, uh, I have some visiting professor posts in, in South American universities and I attended a medical conference uh, in Colombia and had the opportunity to go to Leticia which is in the Amazon jungle the Colombian Amazon and um, I made contact with a, sh a shaman called Donna Angelica, who I think was a an authentic person. It wasn't a, a, a crummy sort of touristic kind of experience. Um, and I took my first psychedelic drugs at the age of 62. I'd, I'd, I'd had 
the opportunity many times to take LSD as a young man, but I was always terrified of taking it because I didn't think my mental capacities would uh, stand it. But by the time I got to 62, I felt that my brain was mature enough to get the best out of psychedelics. So I plucked up courage and did it. And it was a very positive experience for me, particularly because it broke. I mean, as you go on in your medical career and you begin to know more and more about less and less, you become you the the, the system tends to make you very rigid. Um, and, um, you, you know, you know everything in a sense, but you know everything about almost nothing. So I think what, what, what it helped me to do was really break down barriers, be much more open um, uh, in my thinking and to look beyond my narrow speciality for new ideas. And uh, I did that. And I think it, it, it's been very helpful. So looking back on the influence that Burroughs had on your life, what advice would you give uh, new doctors, new neurologists that are just entering the field as to how they should approach their thinking and their research and their way of uh, understanding diseases and learning how to treat them and, and dealing with patients and all of that? Well, well, I would say first of all, and this is not this is not easy to achieve. I mean, neurology is full of brutal neurodegenerative diseases, many of which don't get as much uh, publicity and medical coverage. For example, compared with cancer, HIV, heart disease, so we we have to di- we have to give a lot of bad news, and we need a lot of compassion, uh, and we. I think that if you don't question and ask questions and try to be curious to find better ways of answering the difficult questions our patients ask us and also um, to look for better treatments, then you, you, you do run the risk of being burnt out. You know, if you, however good a doctor you are, if you're just seeing patients every day and you're not having time to question and, and be curious. So the, the, the first thing I would say is try to devise your job plan so that you leave a bit of time aside to uh, do research. Now, I'm not talking about working in a laboratory because this is very specialized and you need to devote all your time to working in a wet laboratory. What I'm talking about is trying to pursue questions that we are asked every day in the clinic and look for answers. And you you don't need uh, high-powered technology uh, or massive amounts of money to do that. You can do very valuable research. So I would encourage uh, young people to do that. Um, Burroughs used to say, nothing is true, everything is permitted. Um, And um, I think that uh, certainly young doctors should question everything. Uh, I, I always say to them when I'm teaching them, look, don't, don't take anything I'm telling you uh, uh, for granted, you know, question it, uh, uh, ask me for evidence, how do I know, these sort of things, so that they, mu- they must develop, they must become a light unto themselves. And I think to be a good doctor, uh, you sometimes have to challenge uh, the system, uh, you have to sometimes break rules, and even sometimes break laws. And I I think um, to be a medical scientist, this little bit of medical research, 
you, you, in a way, you have to be a kind of anarchist because you, if you believe that you're on the right track, uh, it's very likely that nobody else will believe it because you're breaking new horizons. So you have to have the, the determination to, to go forward with that. And I think that's what Burroughs and the Beat Generation did. They were very co courageous. They, they questioned authority and they broke down uh, a lot of conformist attitudes, which I, uh, I don't think were very uh, helpful. So for all, all those things, and then the, the last thing I think is that I would say that to be a good doctor, you need to be an artist and that um, we should use scientists to help us find better treatments. But to be a good doctor, you're not a scientist, you're an artist. We, we, don't, we, we don't deal in certainties. We deal in balance of probabilities. Nothing is certain in medicine. So you need to be a, a good person. You have to um, put your fellow man in front of yourself, which, of course, Burroughs actually didn't do, and that's we've covered why he wouldn't have made a particularly a good doctor. But where I think what, what I got out of him is that you can... Uh, I think many advances in research come from uh, the concatenation of different chance findings. So if you have a very broad interest, and if, if, for example, you're interested in collecting butterflies or rocket science, and you can bring your interests from those hobbies into your medical practice, uh, th this can be a very fertile source of new research ideas, which, which will take you very much beyond the narrow confines that we work in. Uh, everything in life these days is becoming much more specialized. Uh, and, you know, we, people, professors are terrible. I mean, I am one, but we, we, we're very narrow-minded. Uh, we think we know everything about small bits. And that's what I think Burroughs can teach young people, um, to open up and uh, be open to new ideas and new suggestions and don't don't just dismiss them as rubbish so you know if a if a patient comes into my office and says uh dr lees i i ate some squid yesterday um and remarkably for the last 10 hours um i i've been almost free from parkinson's disease instead of just saying it's rubbish uh Think about it and look look into it. Of course, you can't look into everything. I mean, this is impossible. But at least open your mind to the possibility that something that seems really quite wacky uh, could actually have substance behind it. One last quick question, which is: once your secret came out and you you revealed your your secret invisible mentor, what was the response from the community, from your peers and your colleagues and 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 your friends? Well, the, the first people to respond were, I, I remember very well the first people to respond. The first person to respond was a, a techie from uh, Silicon Valley who wrote to me and said that my book had actually been very inspirational and had helped him in his work as a, to find new technologies. And then a poet wrote to me and said that my book was going to be a, a cultural classic. So I got very nice early responses. Uh, but no, no, but no responses for quite a long time from, um, and I got some nice reviews in literary magazines. Some people said it was a well-written book, and so on. I got the, so that that was kind of nice as an aspirant doctor writer. 
But the people I really wanted to hear from were my peers because I, I, I'd written the book really uh, in the hope that young people uh, might challenge some of the things where I thought we were going wrong and that, uh, that I might get some sympathy from uh, my contemporaries. And um, I'm sure it's the same in the States. I mean, medicine is a bit like a brotherhood. You know, we, 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 we're very busy people and we tend to mix with our own group, our own peer group. So in the book, I say doct neurologists are a bit like policemen. We mix with our own uh, type. And of course, partly doctors do that because they don't want to be grabbed at cocktail parties and so on and asked about health issues. So we, we do tend to, to stick very much together. So I was very anxious and preoccupied that I, would be, I wouldn't be ostracized because I've always enjoyed being a doctor. I mean, I've had my struggles and my ups and downs, but, but it's been a, an enormous honor and a privilege to be a doctor. And I'm so glad that my parents originally edged me in the direction of, of medicine. And the thought of all my friends and contemporaries in medicine saying I'd gone nuts or that I was wacky was quite terrifying. And I think partly was the reason why I didn't write this book 20 years earlier, where I think in a sense it might have had more effect because I would have still been a very leading a leader in, in my field as a, you know, a highly cited neurologist and people might have uh, perhaps respected and take more notice of it. Anyway, I made it in the end and, it, uh, and we did it. So eventually the very last people to contact me were my peers and I got a very nice review in one of the top neurology journals by a neurologist called Ray Tallis who also write, writes books and then finally a couple of my direct contemporaries who, who sympathized with some of the issues that uh, I'd actually brought forward and raised so that came as a, I can tell you as a really a great uh, relief for for me uh, in the end, but what 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 I've actually enjoyed about writing it is that it's opened up. Not only has it opened up my mind to new ideas for science, but it's opened. I've I've met some very with book readings, meeting different people. I've met I've really met groups of people who I've never really met before, and I've greatly appreciated meeting them. So a lot of artists, a lot of deadbeats, survivors of the beat generation, uh, all these sorts of people. And it, that's, that's been really great fun from our, on a personal note for me to do that. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Chitra. Dr. Andrew Lees is Professor of Neurology at University College London Institute of Neurology. His book is called Mentored by a Madman, The William Burroughs Experiment, and I would highly recommend a read. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. 
Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.